Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. I want to welcome you back to the program again this week and thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to watch and listen. I trust you're being blessed by the word that we're sharing. We started two weeks ago sharing a series from the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. We've, we've only gotten just a little ways in Ezra. Nehemiah set the stage for some of this stuff. But Ezra and Nehemiah are books about reformation and restoration. What I started to share with you last week, just almost impossible to get everything I needed to say in one segment last week, is that Israel had been carried away captive into Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar as a result of not heeding the words of the prophet Jeremiah the kings repeatedly did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord and he literally says last but not least that they were there because they didn't keep Sabbath and they would be there in captivity for 70 years until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths and I began to share with you last week that to me, and not just to me, but in the New Covenant, the Sabbath day is not what day of the week you worship. The Sabbath is a rest, it is a rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. When you understand His finished work and how the work got finished, it will bring you into a perpetual rest and a perpetual Sabbath day. I begin to share with you last week, though, because we don't focus on the new covenant. We are carried away captive into slavery by a Babylonian religious system. And I showed you last week that the book of Revelation has a tale of two cities, Babylon the great harlot, the whore, and the new Jerusalem bride, the lamb's wife. I showed you in Galatians, the fourth chapter, that those two women represented two covenants. One originated in Mount Sinai and was the present-day Jerusalem at the time of the Apostle Paul writing that, and the other was the New Jerusalem, the Messianic Kingdom of Christ. You can go read that in Galatians 4, especially in the Amplified Bible. It also tells us in Hebrews 12 the same thing, and he repeats it, and he says, You did not come to mount blackness and darkness, you did not come to fear and trembling. You did not come to a God who says, stay away. You've not come to a God who says, you will be thrust through with a dart. So terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. He said, but you did not come to that mountain. That mountain was Mount Sinai and represents the old covenant. But in the middle of that, he switches gears and says, but you are come to Mount Zion, and you are come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. In Hebrews 11, Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker was God, whose chief architect was God. And in Hebrews 12, he tells you what that city is. It's the new covenant people of God, for you've not come to Mount Sinai. You didn't come to fear and trembling. You didn't come to blackness and darkness. But in the new covenant, you have come. You are not marching to. You have come to Mount Zion, and you have already come to the city of the living God and to an innumerable company of angels and to the general assembly of the church, 
of the firstborn which was written in heaven. And I showed you last week how that in Revelation chapter 16, 17, and 18, it was the judgment of the great harlot. And one of the things that he indicts her on is that in her is found the blood of all the martyrs of the earth. They filled up the cup, and she was drunk with the blood of the martyrs. Jesus literally had prophesied concerning her apostasy and her harlotry and her fornication, and says in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, fill up then the measure of your father's sin. In Revelation 17 and 18, the cup is full of abomination. And in Matthew 23, Jesus said, fill up then the cup of the abominations. And he says that upon the blood, Matthew 23, he said, You have testified against yourself that you are the children of those that killed the prophets. And he said, Woe to you, scribes, woe to you, Pharisees, for you... You, 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 you stone them that are sent to them. You, you, you kill the prophets. And he said that upon you and upon this generation, he said in Matthew 23, not this one in 2020, that one that he was talking to a lot. He said upon this generation will come the blood of all that were slain upon the earth. And much of what you see in Revelation of the judgment of the great harlot city that was burnt with fire and destroyed and made naked and burnt and given her flesh was given to the fowls of the heavens to feed upon even the, 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 the even the insignia on the staff of the roman banner was that of a dirty bird if you will a fowl that would come and fill its belly with the flesh of the jerusalem Jesus said that in Matthew 24 when he said, when they said, where, Lord? He said, wherever you, the carcass is, that's where the vultures will be gathered together. It was a symbol of the Roman army that would come and make her desolate and burn her with fire. It was a judgment upon a harlot system. Now it calls her, and then, you know, there's several things that I could go into here to kind of make some proof text that she is the harlot. I mean, the prophets continually call her uh, called her out on her whoredoms and her harlotry and her idolatry. And and uh, one of the things she says in Revelation is, I said as a queen and I am not a widow, she refuses to recognize the fact that she killed her first husband on Calvary's tree and that because he is raised from the dead, he's free to be married to another. And upon the judgment of this great Babylonian harlot, the moment Babylon is fallen is fallen. He says, rejoice over her, because now the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. So upon the destruction of old apostate, old covenant Jerusalem and Israel, God gives birth to a new Jerusalem, the Messianic kingdom of Christ, and a new city. And neither one of these are, uh, these are peoples. They're not, not necessarily literal location. This bride, the Lamb's wife, is a people. It's not a place. It is the bride, the Lamb's wife. It is the tabernacle of God that is with men. And when you see Revelation chapter 21, it is almost a repeat of the restoration of the city uh, of God uh, with its 12 gates. When you come into the book of Nehemiah, there's 12 gates that are restored. Uh, the walls are built, which are are, 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 are restored and, and uh, uh, so that the breaches of the enemy cannot get in. And, you know, uh, you know I, I, the prophet Isaiah prophesied concerning the walls, and he said, Your walls shall be called salvation, and your gates shall be called praise. 
I want to say to you today that as we study Ezra and Nehemiah, we're going to talk about the rebuilding of this city. Arise, let us build. We must move away from Babylonian, our Babylonian diet, and we must begin to move towards Reformation. Arise, let us build. Build what? Let's build the temple of God again. But it's not a place, it's a people. Let's build some relationships. Let's build up homes again. Let's build up the local church. Let's build up and edify one another. Let us build a bridge with all of the racial tensions going on. Let us build uh, an, an avenue that we can see restoration come back to the house of God. And he talks about you know, when they came back up out of captivity and they received a decree and read the prophets uh, uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and foretold of this King Cyrus that would come and that would give a decree to restore and to build. And, and interestingly enough, when uh, Daniel the prophet gave the commandment to restore, or he gave the great prophecy that we hang most of our end time stuff on in Daniel chapter 9, he was reading from the prophet Jeremiah. And God made him understand by years how long they would be in captivity. Seventy years, he read from the book of Jeremiah, my people will be in captivity. And Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 36, the last chapter, 70 years were accomplished. That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might begin to come to pass, that God would restore his people back into their temple, back into their land, and back into their city. It was at that place where he literally, see, Daniel uh, was in the palace of Babylon. We, we, we sometimes when we read the Bible, we think, well, this happened way down the, the line, but we don't realize these people were contemporaries. When they were, when they were in Babylonian captivity, Daniel was in the palace of some of these kings that you read about in Chronicles that had carried them away captive. Now they're, they're in, 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 in captivity. But right in the midst of Babylonian captivity, even in a government of Babylon, God still had some leaders like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that were there speaking the word of the Lord to the king Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and all these guys that were going through these different things, that these dreams and these visions that they saw and had. And, and so even this King Cyrus, who could not sleep, Daniel actually was, you know, uh, through a couple of these different empires that would replace, like, first of all, Babylon, and then uh, the, 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 the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. That would be the digression of the kingdoms that would rule over the people of Israel. But some historians and some scholars say that it was Daniel that went back to the book of Isaiah and found the place where Isaiah, listen to this, Isaiah prophesied, I believe it was 150 to 200 years before Cyrus ever came on the scene and called him by name and said, Thus saith the Lord, Cyrus is my shepherd and he will rebuild my house. And one night this King Cyrus cannot sleep. And somebody brings him something to read. I think it was probably Daniel. Some scholars say that it was more than likely Daniel who brought him this prophecy that he saw in Isaiah. And he was so impressed with this God who knew who he was. Even 
hundreds of years before he was born and called him by name. And he said, go, it's time to restore and build Jerusalem. Is it possible that we're living in a season that even in the midst of heathen kings that are ruling us, that God is giving a command for reformation and restoration? Now you can abandon ship if you want to, but I don't believe it's over by any stretch of the imagination. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and the earth and all they that dwell therein. And I believe that the word of the Lord that He spoke to Ezra and Nehemiah, Arise, let us build, is what God is saying to us in this hour as we begin to collect the materials to see God bring about restoration to the people of God. But what was the progression of that? As I, as I, let, me just, let me just finish some of this. I, I really hate to get eschatological with this, but it's in the midst of this that Daniel is reading this prophecy about the 70 years of captivity that Jeremiah prophesied and shows the king, and that the king is giving a decree for them to come back and to restore the, 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 the temple first of all, and then King Artaxerxes gives the command to restore and build Jerusalem in the book of Nehemiah. But Daniel says that that's when God gave him understanding concerning the times when he prophesied the 70 weeks of years, when he said 490 years are determined upon my people to finish the transgression, to bring an end of sin, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision, and to anoint the most holy. From the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince would be 483 years. The commandment to restore and build Jerusalem went forth in Ezra chapter 7 under King Artaxerxes, and exactly 483 years later, Jesus comes on the scene, and He is Messiah. In other words, it's right on the mark of the time slot that Jesus comes on the scene, and after three and a half years, Messiah was cut off, but not for Himself. And after three and a half more years, Jesus was cut off, and because the sacrifice for sin made an end of sin, brought in everlasting righteousness, and sealed up the vision and the most holy place. And it was three and a half years left of the scope of that prophecy that many prophecy preachers are trying to hang in the future and even try to connect to where we're living today and say we're headed for seven years of great tribulation. I'm telling you there's no Bible to hang seven years of tribulation on. If you look at it exactly in the context of how Daniel prophesied it in chapter 9, 70 weeks were determined, chopped off, set in, set in time. They were literally 490 years. There was the scope of the prophecy that God would give Jerusalem to be able to repent. They killed their Messiah in the middle of the, ma of the last seven-year period, so that at best it would be three and a half years left. But from the time Jesus was crucified, died, and rose again, there's three and a half years left of the scope of that prophecy. And Jesus tells His disciples right before He ascends, He says, go first to Judea and Jerusalem, and then to the utmost part of the earth. He was giving them the full 490 years three and a half more years after He's crucified, to come into the new covenant promises of God. But the clock strikes midnight sometime around the time when Stephen is stoned to death, and God said, that's it, time's out. Now I'm going to take this kingdom and give it to the Gentiles. And then it is just within a little space of time, within the scope of the prophecy that Jesus gave, that Jerusalem would be burnt with fire, the great harlot city would be destroyed, it would become the Babylon of Revelation, the hold of every foul spirit, and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. 
the dirty birds of the Romans had come into the city and were now about to desecrate it and burn her with fire and strip her naked and the merchants of the earth would mourn and wail and weep and wail and gnash their teeth because of her. That was stuff that he was prophesying in the first century that would take place because in her was found the blood of all that were upon the earth. Does that seem to you like almost a repeat of what was happening in the book of Chronicles under King Nebuchadnezzar? Is he burnt their city, he destroyed their... But right after that, God raises up a heathen king by the name of Cyrus and says, Thus saith the Lord, I'm going to be favorable to the people of God, and I'm going to give a commandment to restore. I believe we are in a window of opportunity right now where God wants us to begin to arise and build. And in order to do that, I believe we're going to have to see some things happen that we're going to build, because see, in the book of Revelation, if that harlot city was in fact the Babylon was the ancient Jerusalem, the old covenant Jerusalem, and I showed you in the last segment that there was two women in Galatians. One was Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the Jerusalem, which was then the natural Jerusalem. And the other one was the Messianic Kingdom of Christ. It's the tale of two cities, but once one of them was destroyed in Revelation, the marriage of the Lamb came and the bride had made herself ready. What I want you to see, though, is that Revelation chapter 17 and 18 calls her the mother of harlots. So I'm not saying that there's not harlotry and whoredoms going on today, but it's religious harlotry. When we operate in the wrong covenant, when we go back up under the old covenant, it puts us back up under the curse and puts us back in that ancient city, that harlot that was already judged. It brings us back into religious confusion because when we preach a mixture of law and grace, it is a mingled seed, and it is a mingled seed outside of covenant, and that's what fornication is, is mingling the seed, and adultery is the mingling the seed outside of covenant. I want you to know that if you're married to Christ, the only seed you need to receive is the seed of Christ, the new covenant that we could bring forth. Romans chapter 7 says that we should be married to another, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. And the only thing that can bring forth fruit is out of our union with Christ as our heavenly husband. Now let me just come back here and, and show you something that I saw very, uh, I thought was really interesting. I believe it's in Ezra, the fourth chapter, if I can find it here real quick. It is in the Message Bible. This really spoke to me. In chapter uh, 4 of Ezra, it said, And Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the family heads of Israel said to them, Nothing doing. Building the temple of our God is not the same thing to you as it is to us. We alone will build for the God of Israel. We're the ones King Cyrus of Persia commanded to do it. Watch this, though. This is what really caught my attention. So these people started beating down the morale of the people of Judah, harassing them as they built. Watch this. They even hired propagandists to sap their resolve. They kept this up for about 15 years throughout the lifetime of Cyrus, king of Persia, and on into the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. In other words, they hired propagandists to distract the people from the real work they were called to do. I'm going to tell you something. I believe there's a propaganda machine and a flood that's coming out of the dragon's mouth right now that's trying to get us to take our focus off of the purpose of God in the earth, and that's His kingdom, 
and to restore and to build this spiritual Jerusalem that I'm talking about, to get us down off of the wall that's called salvation and our gates that are called praise. It's to halt the work and to stop and to get us distracted from it. But I'm going to tell you that I'm going to, I'm going to stand like Nehemiah and say, I'm not coming down off this wall. And I believe what we're going to have to do in the midst of all this distraction is do exactly what they did in the time of restoration and reformation. We're going to have to guard each other's back. And they begin to organize and say, listen, man, the enemy wants to stop the work of God. But you take your sword and you guard and you guard my back while I lay the brick and I'll work on the wall and I'll, and I'll, and I'll begin to rebore, and I will begin to revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and we will revive these stones. Let me tell you something. These stones that God wants to revive out of the heaps of rubbish are lively stones that are being fitly framed together. They're people who've been burnt and disenfranchised by a religious system that marginalized them and didn't hear. I believe sometimes that people that we thought were crazy and rejected were actually hearing from God. But I believe, and then our children that were disenfranchised by a religious system that preached the wrong covenant until it ran them off and have found themselves in, in, in all kinds of substance abuse and left the house of God and bondages and marriages wrecked and all kinds of problems going on. He's going to revive those stones out of the heaps. And he's going to build a wall called salvation. Arise. Let us build. Let us build relationships. Let's build strong homes. Let's build local churches. As Ezra began to come back, Ezra was a scribe, and, and I begin to see something as well here. Ezra was a scribe, and he was a teacher, and he began to preach the word, and he began to restore synagogues. I believe one of the first steps we're going to have to see is we're going to have to have a season of returning back to the house of God. Now, let, let me tell you this. The temple of God would be built later. Or would be, it was going to be built as well, but they built synagogues. That was their, the temple was the main centerpiece of their covenant. But they had these synagogues around other places where they would teach and learn and rabbis would teach and they'd share the Word of God and they would get back in the Word of God because the Word of God is what gave them their national identity. They'd lost their genealogy and their identity and they were so confused they spoke half the language of the Chaldeans and half the language of the Babylonians. They didn't have a pure language or a pure speech or a pure doctrine. I believe God is restoring apostles and prophets. If you read Revelation chapter 21 and 22, the walls of these cities had on them the name of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. I hope you're understanding what I'm talking about when I'm talking in the Spirit like this. I'm not talking about a natural building someplace. I'm talking about a spiritual building. Because we are built as a spiritual house upon the foundation of apostles and prophets Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. I'm telling you that the apostolic doctrine has to come back. True apostles and prophets are beginning to come. A fresh emphasis on apostles. And now I know sometimes I cringe when I hear that word because it's been so abused by, you know, who's your daddy and you can rent a dad program and who's your spiritual father and if you pay enough money you can buy a relationship. I'm not talking about that craziness. I'm talking about real apostles 
that are going to lay some apostolic foundation, some apostolic doctrine, and that doctrine is going to come back to a focus on Jesus Christ and the chief cornerstone, and everything that we preach is going to line up with Him. And you're going to hear apostles again say, I profess to know nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified. And we're going to bring us back to our national identity as the people of God with respect rather than with repulsiveness when people look at what the church is and what it's not. I believe there's a restoration. The priesthood was polluted in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah until they began to bring reformation and restoration. But as they began to gather the stones out of the heaps, and they started to build the walls, and the, the, the breaches began to shut up, and, and as they were building the wall, it would say, and the family of so-and-so was built this section of the wall, and the family of so-and-so built this section, and the family of so-and-so built this section. And my pastor said something a couple of weeks ago that really resonated with me. She said, she said, you need to find your family on the wall. And I thought, boy, does that resonate with me. What do you mean? I think we need to get our families involved in something redemptive. Not trying to be legalistic, not trying to be critical here today, but we've taught our kids how to play, but we've not taught them how to pray. We've made soccer and baseball and football more important than the house of God. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have sports. I'm just trying to say somewhere we're going to have to get something back in our priority list or we're going to find out that a whole lot of the fabric of what holds us together, I think what we need to do is get our family and find our family on the wall, lay our cell phone down, and, and get together at supper again and start talking about uh, how did your day go and what's going on in your life. And you know what? Maybe during this time of epidemic where we've been shut in with each other, maybe it was a time to reconnect and find our families so we can find our place on the wall and build again the house of God. You know, I am what I am today because my dad thought it was important to take his family and get up and go to church. There were seven children. It's not easy to get seven kids ready to go to church and sit in church with seven kids. But I'm going to tell you what, it may not look like we were paying attention. We might have been playing with our cars and our little toys on the seat. But I can tell you what, now four generations later, his grandkids stand in his pulpit and preach the gospel of the kingdom. Find your family on the wall. Set a priority to teach your children how to pray. Set a priority to be a part of the house of God. Let's build again the synagogue. Let's build the house of God. Let's restore what I, uh, Ezra did. Let's restore real worship. I believe worship is going to come. I believe new songs are going to come that are not going to be this need-based, man-centered, but they're going to be full of divine supply of what we have and who we are and our national identity, and it's going to begin to bring our worship back to where it's about, and that's about beholding Him and what He's like, and then reproducing His image in the earth. Real worship is when you behold Him in prayer and in worship, and then you reproduce His image and His likeness in the earth, because we were called to be image bearers. It's a season of reformation, a season of restoration. We're out of time. And I want you to join me again next week at the same time. If you would like to sow a seed into this ministry, we really do need your help, especially at this season, because we are not traveling much. And without your help, it's impossible to pay the bills. If you've watched and you really enjoy your feeding from us, there's a link you can give by going to my website. There's a place there where you can give via credit card or PayPal or debit card. 
You can call the number on the screen. Someone will take your call. If they, you don't get an answer, leave a message. They will call you back. If you'd like to give that way, you can write a check or money order and send it to the address that will come up on the screen. And all of that, the, really the easiest way is simply to go to our website. There's a PayPal where you can give through PayPal with your credit card, your debit card, or whatever. But we do need your help, and we appreciate deeply your help as we stand together in this season of Reformation. God bless you. I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled The Great I Am. In this book, we will explore the seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. When he uses that phrase, it is always in contrast to something from the Old Covenant. For instance, they thought Moses and the law was the door into the sheepfold, but Jesus said to them, I am the door. They thought that Israel was the true vine, but Jesus said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you read the pages of this book, you will discover that Jesus removed the covenant of death and replaced it with the covenant of life. Get your copy of the book, The Great I Am, today.